0: You're listening to The Feed.
1: This is The Feed.
0: This is The Feed. The Feed. You're listening to The Feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to The Feed in Vaughan.
1: In
2: Stouffville.
3: In Woodbridge. In Unionville.
2: You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events That matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show today, the launch of the Just Do Kindness Foundation and the work of the Dr. J. Children's Grief Center. Also on the show, we meet the Citizen of the Year and a few tips to ease the stress of back-to-school shopping. But we begin with how soon is too soon to introduce your child to technology. Galit Solomon with some IT support. Mark, it's great to have you on the show, and of course, we're talking
4: about a topic that you're very passionate about, and that's technology. I know that usually you talk about uh, gadgets, some of the greatest and latest sort of items that are out there. Today, we're turning the conversation a little bit over towards, uh, you know, what is the appropriate age? And in my eyes, of course, you are the tech uh, celebrity around here, so it's great to have (laughs) your take on this. Uh, So let's start there. You know, what is the right age to introduce kids to to technology?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And first of all, thanks for having me and for the kind words. (laughs) You know, there isn't a a recommended age per se where, okay, by, you know, grade one, which is, I guess... uh, typically six years old or so, you, you have to be adept at computers. I think that there's uh, the, the early years of education, they focus a lot more on dexterity, you know, hand-eye coordination, building blocks and and literacy and and, and computer or digital literacy will come into play at some point. Um, it's a little bit early, but the, the more comfortable that they are, and let's face it, kids, you know, on an iPad or on a laptop, they're very comfortable. Uh, it will become increasingly important academically as well as socially, where you have kids in one classroom that set up a group chat, and they all communicate this way, and they exchange files, and they collaborate on projects in real time, sometimes with video communication. So it will be sort of table stakes by the early grades. I'd say, you know, three, four, it's going to become... Uh, quite prominent, but is there a, a recommended or a must-have age? Not necessarily. Every child, as you know, develops and grows on their own. Not to mention, uh, budgets uh, vary between households. Uh, you want to make sure your kids are responsible with technology. You don't want to give them a you know a two thousand dollar laptop <laughs> before it's time. And then smartphones come a bit later. So I would say that you know by grades five, six, seven, you know as you go into middle school and of course into high school, smartphones will play a very important role as as a key tool uh, in the education space, not just for for fun but for schoolwork as well.
4: Right, and you know what? I don't know if I should be admitting this or not, but my six-year-old, for instance, I, I'm amazed sometimes when I watch him maneuver his way on um, a tablet and how yep. intuitive it is for him, right? Like, he, he knows exactly what to do and where to go. And, and I guess the next question is, are we doing our kids a disservice by starting too late?
0: Starting too possible? late? Uh, I don't think so when you're, you're still talking about the early grades, you know, certainly up to, say, grades four, 5, 6. You're, you're still fine. I don't think a child needs a smartphone, for example. But uh, computers, yeah, they're going to start having assignments at school that uh, will require it to be, you know, typed on a computer, um, and they're going to have to learn how to move a mouse and, and click. And as you know, it is very intuitive to them. But there is this digital divide where not every family has access to technology, but of course there are libraries and school labs where you can use computers for free. But I, I do think that it, it should be part of your, uh, you know, part of your arsenal, if you will, of edu- educational tools by, you know, by the early grades. And, and it will be required. Yeah, it's, it's something that, that it is going to be necessary because they're going to need that, of course, going into adulthood and into the workforce. So I don't know if there's a question of too late, um, you know, because think about kids who may have come from another country and they didn't have computers. They often mm-hmm. catch up. But, um, you know, definitely uh, you're, you're going to want your child to work on, on a computer for school. And then a smartphone is, Secondary, I think, until until the high school, and then it's it's an important tool for a
4: variety of reasons. Now, before we get into the various uh, tools and you know what's appropriate, maybe at at later ages and so on, I wanted to flip the coin for a moment and talk about parents of young children. Uh, I read a survey recently that suggested that parents of young children tend to reach for their uh, smartphones. 70 times a day, which sounds excessive to me, but you're saying not the case, right?
0: Well, I guess, I've heard, in fact, it's more than double that of wow. uh, people who use a smartphone how many times a day they look at it or touch it. Um, and I'm not surprised by that. And then if you look at uh, tweens and teens who have access to a smartphone, it's often, you know, uh, even twice of that. So we're talking six, 700 times a day. It sounds excessive, but this is a device that we do keep with us all the time. We use it for uh, entertainment, communication, as adults, uh, navigation. You know, uh, productivity. These are are, are like mm-hmm. fitness. I mean, the list goes on and on. Photography. We, it's out like a digital Swiss Army knife. Uh, it's, <laughs> that, it, it is your one go-to device that can do it all. So it's no surprise that we use it a lot. But what I think you're hinting at here is uh, an increasingly common problem in Canada, and that's digital addiction. When when mm-hmm. is uh, too much too much? And I think that we. It has to boil down to moderation, and it does start at the top. You know, if the kids are having trouble putting down their phones at home, then, you know, guess what? Mom and dad may be the role model that they're looking to who are also addicted to their devices. So, you know, every household's different. I don't want to sound preachy. But, um, you know, I think that moderation is key. Uh, eye, eye contact is important to us. As Like my wife and I, we have three kids. We It's important to us that when we bring our kids out socially that they uh, get along without their tech and they are comfortable in their own skin and, and not have to look at a screen in order to be, you know, uh, relaxed and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and we also have a no texting at the table rule, a simple thing like, you know, put your phones away and then you come and eat, we're going to have family time and and talk verbally about our day and then we can go back to the tech later on. And then also at nighttime, we, you know, as our kids grew up, we were worried about them being too addicted to their tech where they had, they were stimulated, right, by Instagram and by, you know, their their group messages and even while they're in bed with their phone in their hand watching Netflix or listening to Spotify, that it's still too stimulating and it's going to have, you know, an impact on how They sleep, how much, and the quality of sleep, and that is another issue. So it's not easy, but I think that uh, as a family, if you have a a collective agreement, you know, I think it works better than saying, okay, for you kids, you have to restrict your tech access, but the parents, we can do what we want. I think it's nice when everybody does it together.
4: That's fair, yeah. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the feed and providing us with your insights on technology. And tune in next week to the feed to hear tech wizard Mark Salzman discuss what technology is appropriate for different levels of education and the difference between wanting and needing technology.
2: This is the feed on 105.9, the region. If you think it's too early for back-to-school shopping, think again. Sydney Bourguignon with
3: advice to ease the stress. Back-to-school season is fast approaching, which means that dreaded back-to-school shopping is just around the corner for a lot of parents. Joining us today on the feed is Belinda Bonnier from Ebates Canada, who is here to talk about early deal hunting and how it can make back-to-school a breeze. Thanks for joining us, Belinda. Thanks so much for having me. So recently, Ebates Canada conducted a poll about back-to-school shopping. Can you tell me a bit about this poll, the sample size, and what the data showed?
5: Absolutely. So we took a sample of over a 1,000 Canadians and looked at the buying habits and sentiments on back-to-school shopping, which really is becoming one of the largest retail events of the year, certainly the beginning of the year for those of us who have kids. Surveys showed that Canadians' shopping Earlier than ever before, mostly to reduce stress around the back to school time frame, but also to find the best deals and to ease the transition of the kids who have been on summer holiday into the back to school time frame and, and headspace.
3: And was any of that data or results of the poll considered surprising? I think what we
5: found the most interesting this year is how many of Canadian parents are saying they're involving their kids in the planning and shopping process. Um, So 94% of Canadian parents saying that they're including their kids in some way in the back to school process. Almost 70% of them saying that they let the kids help to pick out the products and the things that they're shopping for.
3: And are there any benefits then to getting back-to-school shopping done early and out of the way? Yeah, you know,
5: what we found was that um, there are a lot of ways to to ease the stress, but parents saying that planning ahead and getting their back-to-school shopping done and out of the way really is the biggest factor in reducing stress and being able to enjoy the end of the summer and the early days of being back at school.
3: So let's take a look at spending. Did the survey consider how much parents are spending on back-to-school shopping? And if so, did it increase depending on age or level of education?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, at Ebates.ca, we're all about looking at saving money. And so finding out how much people are spending on back-to-school was really important to us. So what we found is that over 60% of parents saying they're going to spend, on average, about $168 per child. Which was consistent with last year, what we saw. And what we're finding is that depending on the age and stage of your kids, that cost will go up or down. So post-secondary age kids, those entering high school, almost $200 per child. And those that are preschool aged, almost $150. So a little bit less for those younger kids.
3: It was the poll only then up to high school students and not considering then university kids as well? That's correct. We're really looking at the attitudes of parents
5: who are still shopping for their school-aged kids. So what we find is that once the students are off to university or college, really the, the attitudes change and the students themselves are doing more and more of the shopping.
3: And so I know you mentioned comparing the spending to last year's poll. Was there significant differences in last year's poll overall in comparison to this year's? The average um, per
5: student was about the same as it was last year. What we're finding is that many parents saying that they're actually starting earlier than they were when we previously asked that question. And also a lot of parents, so over 75% of parents, saying that they're keeping their kids' minds engaged during the summer with books and activities, so making sure that that is also helping to reduce the back-to-school stress.
3: And I think almost every parent would agree that back-to-school shopping can be that much better if there are back-to-school deals. Can you tell us some strategies people use for finding the best bargains?
5: So... There's a couple tricks up people's sleeves when it comes to -to back-to-school shopping. 70% of people saying, you know, they go to the retailer website, they do a bit of research, see when the sales are starting, which, by the way, they're already starting, which is hard to believe since we're, you know, not even past the August long weekend yet. Um, But also, we're seeing that 40% of people saying they're using cashback websites like eBates.ca to help, you know, get a little bit more bang for their buck as they are starting their research around back-to-school shopping.
3: So if listeners wanted to use Ebates to help with uh, finding bargains, how would they go about doing that?
5: Yeah, so Ebates is a free website. You sign up at ebates.ca, There's a $5 welcome bonus on your first purchase of $25 or more, and you can find 750 merchants that we have partnered with anywhere from Amazon to Walmart to Old Navy, Gap. We really have a lot of very popular merchants and retailers. You shop through that retailer as usual, and you earn cash back on everything you're buying online.
3: And is there anything else listeners should know about the poll that we haven't discussed already? I don't think so.
5: I think, you know, the one thing that we saw, which was um, an an interesting point here, is that, you know, having the kids involved, planning a little bit early, gives the kids the opportunity to really ease the transition as they're getting ready to go back to school. And because so many parents are including the kids in the shopping process, if there's something that's on their list that's not on your list, also give them the opportunity to earn a little bit of school or for, earn a little bit of money, pardon me, for back to school shopping themselves by doing some summer chores around the house.
3: Well, thank you so much, Belinda, for joining us on the feed. Has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Happy shopping. If listeners wanted to find out more information about the Polar or Ebates, where could they go? You can find the information
5: in our press
3: release section on eBase.ca. Well, thank you so much. Hopefully now we can uh, dread those back-to-school commercials just a little bit less. I hope so. <laughs> thank you.
2: You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show... Head over to 1059theregion.com for a replay. Over to Afwaba next and the Citizen of the Year.
6: Well, what started off as a health concern turned into a self-imposed environmental challenge and that has now reaped rewards in many ways. I'm speaking today with Roger Davidson. He is this year's Citizen of the Year from Woodchurch, Stouffville and we're now coming to hear his story. Uh, Mr. Davidson, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
7: You're very welcome.
6: For those who may not know, of course, tell us your story and then how it all unfolded into you ultimately receiving the Citizen of the Year Award.
7: Well, it's uh, it's interesting. My, my doctor gave me a challenge about uh, two years ago to do more walking. Um, he asked me h- how much I was walking. I told him 5,000 steps a day, and he, he said I want to see that doubled. Uh, so I'm uh, never being one to... Uh, treat things likely, I I came home and bought a Fitbit and started walking 15 or 20,000 steps a day. And um, uh, I always have my dog with me uh, because he, he needs the exercise as well. And the first thing I started noticing when I was walking on the the pathways around our, our town was really plastic litter uh, everywhere I walked. So I thought, well, I'll pick up one of those uh, grabbers from Canadian Tire and carry a, a shopping bag with me and just pick things up uh, while I'm walking. And it um, wasn't very long before I was picking up I don't know, seven or eight, ten shopping bags uh, of plastic uh, litter pr- pretty much every day. And as the pathways seemed to get cleaner and cleaner, I started going into the forest. And um, sure enough, I, I found Uh, kids hideaways with uh, hundreds of bottles of plastic bottles that that I cleaned up and and I guess it was about a year and a half ago I was down at a a stormwater pond on um, uh, Lashway and I ran into a a dead great blue heron. Uh, This uh, poor bird had been dead for a couple of weeks so I I pulled it apart with uh, two sticks and saw that its stomach was uh, really completely filled with plastic. Uh, About a week and a half later, I watched a a white trumpeter swan diving in one of the ponds up on Hoover Park. And uh, about the third dive uh, down, it came up with a a plastic bag over its head. And I I thought, boy, there's no way for these, these animals to live like this. So I, I started working on the stormwater ponds with my uh, dog, and we would walk around all the edges of the ponds and clean up as much of the of the plastic that we could find. Um, and my dog, I, I, I didn't really teach him this, but he, he would watch me picking up uh, plastic bottles with the grabber, and if he, um, if he saw one floating out in the water, He'd swim out and bring it back for me, so he, he's really turned into a a, a plastic a litter dog as well. As well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really how it, it turned out. And, and the, um, uh, it, it seemed that on a pretty regular basis, I would run into people along the pathways who would thank me for what I was doing and say, uh, you know, I really have to start getting into that myself. We we walk a lot, and uh, uh, that's a great idea. Uh, the, the Kimberly Stark from the Lions Club called me a few months ago and thought that this was such a great idea that she uh, uh, she has her Lions Club now involved doing the same thing on a monthly basis so I, I, really one person can't do it alone uh, but um, if you uh, set a good example it inspires people and, and uh, certainly like the Lions Club it gets the, more of the town involved in that kind of thing and um, the result is that we've got much cleaner pathways now.
6: And it's not even just one person or one group. It's now even translating to pets too. I love that part where you just said um, your dog would even sort of, sort of started catching wind on it and started even picking up um, to help out too. I think that's cute.
7: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a he's a good dog and he uh, seems to pick up on on things like that quickly. So, uh, the, in fact, this morning we were out doing the pond up on. Uh, uh, Hoover Park, and and he uh, found uh, two old old plastic ball balls that were along the shoreline, and uh, grabbed both of those and brought them over to me. So they ended up in the in the garbage bag as well.
6: Wow, that's so wonderful. Okay, and so then, how did the town catch wind of you um, picking up litter, and then how did the nomination come about?
7: Well, I I believe it was. Um, I mean, it may have been more than one person, but. Uh, again, because I run into so many people along the way while I'm walking, I, I really got to know the, the town folk, the people who cut the grass and look after the, the pathways that work for the town. And, and it got to the point where every time I saw somebody on a, on a lawnmower, they would smile and give me a thumbs up and and wave to me because they knew what I was doing and knew that I was helping, um. and, and, uh, again, people would stop me and ask me what I was, uh, I was doing. And when I explained it to them, uh, they, they'd say a terrific idea. I'm going to start doing that too. So I think we're just kind of spread around. Um, uh, and it, I, I know for sure with Kimberly Stark, uh, from the Lions club is, is one of the people who nominated me. Um, and, um, uh, I, I'm not sure how the selection process works, but, um, uh, i guess there was enough support there that they made me citizen of the year
6: awesome okay that's and it's a well deserved award to too uh, and before i continue of course congratulations um and i i know probably you weren't even thinking about getting an accolade but it's just something that you wanted to do for your town so um i think it's just a, a kudos to you on on that part um another question is uh how much letter do you anticipate that you collected
7: um, based on the on the length of time that I've been doing this uh, uh, and and the amount that I pick up each day, it's it's well over three thousand shopping bags of of plastic. i I belong to uh, two or three different Facebook groups, uh, one called uh, People who pick up Plastic, another one that's called uh, the thirty Day Litter Pickup Challenge, and what I do as sort of part of of that of those groups. Is, is that I take a picture of what I've picked up during the day and send it into the groups, really to inspire other members of those groups to do the same thing. And <clears throat> I'm now seeing that there's people in Thunder Bay and uh, British Columbia and uh, really all across Canada that are doing the same thing that I do. Uh, and in fact, in that group of uh, people who pick up plastic, I know that there's a, a fellow in Hong Kong Who's doing the same thing? So it isn't just here in Whitchurch, Stovall. Really, there's folks like me everywhere in the world doing this kind of cleanup. And, uh, but, it, it's, but it's infectious. It, it rubs off on other people and it's a positive, uh, impact on both the town and on the population. Uh, so it's a good thing.
6: I think that's the perfect word that you mentioned there. It is definitely infectious, and um, because of that, have you seen anything change since you won the award? I mean, have you seen less litter on the ground, or uh, maybe if someone sees you as you're walking, they maybe quickly pick up some things as they're moving along as well?
7: Absolutely, yes. I mean, I I know from the amount of litter that I was picking up a year ago, uh, the pathways are are much, much cleaner now. Uh, I used to find all kinds of dog poo bags and, clean uh, uh, access all over the place, and uh, if, it, if, it, if it isn't the uh, blown blue blocks, uh, boxes, uh, I would say that the littering is far less now than it used to be. I mean, certainly there's a, occasional instances of uh, littering, but it's far, far less now than it was. And I, I think that when people walk those paths and find that they're clean rather than littered, they're they're much less likely to throw things on them. Uh, another, another thing I pick up uh, with that grabber are cigarette butts, and it, particularly around the, the stormwater ponds like our dog uh, park, um, the, uh, there's a pathway around that dog park. And, you know, the first rain, those cigarette butts are going to wash into the pond, and it's bad for the turtles and the birds and the wildlife that live there. So I, I just keep them clean, and I, I find uh, every day that I walk those paths, there's fewer and fewer uh, cigarette butts to pick up and much, much less plastic than a year ago. So I, you know, I think that because the pathways are cleaner, uh, the folks who walk them are much less inclined to make them dirty.
6: I think that's some great news to hear that there has been such an improvement um, uh, over over the time that you have started an, picking up trash. So um, I think that's uh, great news to hear all around. Um, finally, what's your message to residents out there? Um, maybe in general, um, since winning your award, what is your, uh, maybe your your words of encouragement to residents?
7: Well, I think everybody should just be aware of, of and, and, and take some pride in, in the in the pathways and the and the stormwater ponds that we have around the town, and and uh, to think twice. I mean, there's city pails that are are really uh, almost everywhere you walk. There's a city garbage pail, and that that's what they're there for to be used. Uh, so, really, my my advice would be to uh, use the trash pails and not the woods and the grass and the forest uh, to throw their litter.
6: Perfect, and uh, short and sweet and perfectly said. Mr. Davidson, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, and of course, congratulations on winning the award, but uh, more importantly, thank you for all of the work that you um, continue to do for the town.
7: Absolutely welcome, and the wildlife uh, uh, enjoys it the most.
2: This week marked the one-year anniversary of the deadly rampage on the Danforth. Two lives were lost. Ten-year-old Juliana Kozis and 18-year-old Reese Fallon, 13, were wounded. The Kosis family from Markham has created the JDK Foundation, also known as the Just Do Kindness Foundation, honoring Juliana's memory and the kindness she embodied in life. The family will be hosting a community event to launch the foundation and to commemorate the beautiful life, love, and memory of Juliana. And it will be held Sunday, that's tomorrow, at uh, Fincham Park in Markham. And joining us to talk more about the foundation is Sarah Henderson from the Dr. J Children's Grief Centre. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Gina, for having me. Before we talk about the Grief Centre, what can you tell us about the JDK Foundation?
8: So you've done a a great job at describing it, um, that the foundation was really launched in honour of the memory of Juliana and wanting to capture some of the kindness that she embodied in life just as a way to keep her light shining in the world, inspiring others to be kind, and I think bringing hope into the lives of of others who need it, which is how they came to
2: be connected with the Dr. J. Children's Grief Center. And can you tell us a little bit about the center?
8: So the center provides counseling and, and programs to children, youth, and families who've been impacted by grief, whether that's from terminal illness or traumatic traumatic loss, and there's a series, a number of programs and services that exist just to make sure that children, youth, and families have access to support, but also access to community and connection and all the things that um, help combat the isolation that many people living with grief face.
2: And how does someone access the, the services that the center provides? So families
8: are able to refer themselves. We don't need any other professionals or medical referrals to happen. Families can just reach out and contact the center if they're interested in finding out more about the programs and services that are currently offered.
2: And what about specifically, can you talk a little bit about the programs that are available and how grief and death is is approached and handled And
8: I think we recognize as a center that um, parents and caregivers and helping professionals are often just so anxious about how to talk about death and dying with children and youth and that they really are looking for sort of the language or developmentally appropriate approaches to how do I talk about this really hard thing? How do I let my child know that someone is dying or has died? And so the center, the Dr. J Children's Grief Center is there Um, with clinical staff and some amazing volunteers to help sort of coach and support both parents and caregivers and helping professionals in having those conversations, but also there to support children and youth in getting access to the honest information that they need about what's happening so that they can have a sense of control um, in their own lives. And just to, to sort of wrap around them to bring them support, whether it's in a a children's group setting where they can see I'm not alone, I'm not the only child that's managing this kind of loss, or to have direct one-to-one support with a counselor, an expressive arts therapist.
2: Now you mentioned there are volunteers at the center as well. What kind of training did they receive and what do they provide? Yeah,
8: so we have a number of programs that really depend on volunteer support. We have an amazing camp program, Um, That runs, actually, we're part of uh, the JDK Foundation launch is really to help us get this new program off the ground called Camp Kindness. So that's one of our new programs that's a family camp for grieving families. So we have volunteers that will come to that camp event, and they're there sort of to be those almost like camp counselor role, um, to be there with children and with families to help them participate in activities, and whether those are fun camp activities or if they're legacy-based activities, you know, in terms of remembering the person that's died. So volunteers are there to support children and families in that camp event. And we also run another camp called Camp Erin, Toronto, and we have approximately 80 volunteers, um, upwards of 80 volunteers, that come to that three-day-long camp that normally happens at the end of May, beginning of June. So we've got an amazing volunteer base, and they participate in... Uh, pretty lengthy training for them um, that's based in supporting children's grief, what's developmentally appropriate, um, a lot of sort of trauma-informed care and support, and how to talk to children and families in in a way that's going to make sense to that child and to that family.
2: And Sarah, what is the first step, do you think, in coping with grief? I mean, we know
8: that grief is a really unique experience for every child, for every adolescent, for every family. So it's certainly hard to say that what works for for one individual is going to work for someone else. But we do know that certainly with children, they really need access to honest and, and clear information about what is going on, whether that's a palliative or terminal diagnosis um, of someone in their life or or how that person has died, that those details are really important to children so that they can begin to process what is going on and start to grieve.
2: When did the Dr. J Center first, um, you know, come into existence? When did it start up? So the center began in
8: about 2006, and we were initially connected to uh, a palliative care program at one of the Toronto downtown hospitals. And the center really came out of this um, identifying a gap in palliative care that there were a lot of younger children involved with adults that were dying who didn't weren't being involved in um, that process. They didn't know how to involve children in care, and children were sort of being blocked from participating in what was going on and knowing what was happening in their family. And so the the center was created to have a means of connecting children um, to to that care for the person that's dying or for the person and the family after they died.
2: And if our listeners want more information about the center or to even volunteer, how can they do that?
8: So we have a website. You can find us certainly online, the Dr. J. Children's Grief Center, and uh, we have a, a tab there for people that are interested in volunteering. They can submit an application online, and we are always looking for skilled and excited and passionate people who want to be involved. We also have a number of fundraisers that we always need support in as well. The Dr. J. Children's Grief Center doesn't receive any government funding, and so fundraising activities are a really critical part of us keeping our doors open and being able to continue to run our programs.
2: Sarah, thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, our thoughts and prayers are certainly with the families of uh, Juliana Kosis and Reese Fallon. Ours as well. Again, if you need more information or want to donate, go to drjchildrensgriefcenter.ca. Shifting gears now and over to Jim Lang with what's next for women's hockey.
1: Megan Bozek is one of the top women's hockey players in North America. Four-time gold medalist with Team USA at the World Hockey Championship, and she was a huge part of the Markham Thunder when they won the coveted Clarkson Cup in 2018. And now, for a variety of reasons, she finds herself without a pro team for the coming season, and thrilled to be speaking to her on the feed. Meg, how are you?
9: I'm doing well. How are you doing, Jim?
1: Well, good. I, I feel frustrated for you, for Laura Stacey, and, and all the women who have... Uh, have given so much of themselves to the Canadian Women's Hockey League to see it in limbo, to see it no more. Right now, um, it's frustrating. You've had time to digest. Now, it's how are you dealing with it?
9: Yeah, it it came obviously as a big shock to to all of us um, that we would no longer have a a league, and and obviously with another re- league running in in North America, um, well, specifically the states, it's. It's hard to to figure out what this future holds for women's hockey, but with all of the hype surrounding uh, the Olympics, World Championships, when we have uh, ladies competing in the NHL All-Star Game, we know that the future is bright, so we have to figure out how to go about it in a way that is sustainable for the future and not just not just another year that we're hoping to hold on. So we're looking at, this as a future investment because some of us might might not even see the benefits of a league in the future um, of good things that come for women's hockey. But we're doing it all for the betterment of the game for the future.
1: Just so listeners are aware, nobody's getting wealthy off playing professional women's hockey in North America. What other jobs do you have, Megan, besides playing in the CWHL when you were in the league?
9: Fortunately. Um, there are a lot of us that are contracted out through our, through our countries, whether that be uh United States, or Canada. So that obviously helps, but a lot of, a lot of coaching in the summer. Um, but, but with that comes responsibility that you'll obviously have to train at times that you might not want to, you might have to skate when it's not ideal, but trying to figure all of that out and making sure that you can stay on your feet and, Pay your rent, pay your mortgage, take care uh, of your families
5: if you have them.
1: Well, I Megan, I, I see the NHL and all the huge money they have with corporate sponsors, the NHLPA, and I see what the NBA does with the WNBA. I, I still can't for the life of me why there isn't more of a financial, I guess, help, helping hand from the NHL to keep pro women's hockey thriving because it's good for everybody.
9: Yeah, I think that's the goal. Obviously, with that being the goal, there's been – there's been numerous meetings with with the NHL side, seeing what that future would look like. Um, so right now, it's it's going to be a an off year where um, we've decided not to play um, in the NWHL or any other league in North America um, to make sure that we all stick together, to make sure that we're all trying to make that push so we can try to make this a living, and try to get all of the best players in the world to to play in one league like the NHL has.
1: I have to admit, Megan, I'm amazed by the solidarity of, of you and, and all the women on both sides of the border who are playing in the Canadian Women's Hockey League. It, I don't see any cracks in the armour at all. Yeah, it's
9: been very, very impressive, but you know that we have to stick together, just like hockey it's a team sport, so with trying to send this game into the future, we have to all work together.
1: I see. I know there are people that come to me and talk to me and say, well, geez, what can I do to help? What could fans and listeners and think, well, I'd like to do something to help them. Who should they email? What can they do to help make sure that professional women's hockey is a thing in North America? Because they all have children and young daughters who aspire to be the next Megan Bozek or Hillary Knight or, or Laura Stacey or whomever and would like a league for them to play in.
9: Yeah, we've actually started an association as well, um, the PWHPA. Professional Women's Hockey Player Association, um, and with that, we are hoping to have some showcase weekends throughout the year. So, with the girls that are still interested in playing, just not in the league this year, we will have training. We will have uh, showcase weekends. So, obviously, coming out to, to support that, and um, we'll, we'll definitely post uh, all of us post on our social medias about uh, where we'll be, what we'll be attending, but. Always looking for sponsors too, because with not playing in the league this year means that we will still need to find ice time, uh, practice games, get our training in. So, obviously, any any little bit helps. But the support has been has been huge, and we are very very grateful grateful for that. So hopefully it continues.
1: You know what, Megan? No matter what happens, nobody can take away that playoff run in 2018, or well, what you and your teammates did with the Markham Thunder and winning. The Clarkson Cup in overtime it was it was phenomenal it's a I know a lot of hockey fans and sports fans in Markham New York region will remember for a long time, and I'm sure you will as well,
9: yeah, it was great um the, that was such a fun year. I had actually joined the team in January, so I was a bit of a of a late addition but um, going on that playoff run and um obviously there's things that always band a team together and we had one of those hard moments as a team throughout the the second half of the season. And we knew that we were, we were going to be unstoppable. We had uh, all a special connection and a special relationship and just the, the chemistry that our team had, we weren't the most skilled on paper, but the amount of support we had for one another and everyone on the ice and everyone that was on the bench just was as big of a part of that team as anyone else. So, it was an incredible, uh, incredible championship, and something that I'll remember for for the rest of my life.
1: Well, Megan, you, you know a lot of NHL uh, current players and alumni players. What kind of feedback do you get from them from them concerning professional women's hockey in North America?
9: Obviously, a lot of people want to see the the NHL take over, and we wish it was that easy with just telling the NHL to to take it over. But it's a process, and a lot of the reason that the CWHL wasn't successful furthermore was its model. Um, it just wasn't sustainable
7: mm-hmm.
9: and they weren't generating the revenue, um, that they obviously wanted to, to make it, um, professional where we, that would be our job. So it's easier said than done and, and we get that and it will take time. And that's why we have to be patient. We have to trust this process, um, so we're hoping that bigger and better things are, are in the future for
1: us. I love it. Megan Bozek of the Markham Thunder and the Canadian Women's Hockey League, uh, fighting the good fight to keep professional women's hockey well alive and well for the long term, for a long time in North America. I thank you for doing this, and uh, you have a supporter in this corner right here, and we hope that everything works out,
9: <laughs> Thank you so much. It's uh, always great to speak, speak about this and, and hopefully gain some more followers uh throughout throughout this process but thanks so
1: much for having me on pleasure meg take care
2: this is the feed on 105.9 the region where we share stories issues and events from across york region including the proposal to ban flushables
6: Now, there have been a bit of uh, rumblings happening at Markham uh, Council and as well as Regional Council, and it's not something that uh, maybe you would think of too often. Uh, There's a little bit of a controversial topic having to do with wipes, baby wipes specifically. We're going to now discuss the situation. Joining me to chat today is uh, Markham Councillor as well as Regional Councillor Jack Heath. Councillor Heath, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
10: I'm looking forward to it.
6: Awesome. Okay, so uh, maybe for the listeners that may not know, uh, let's give them a bit of a background. So I will not go into detail with it. I will uh, allow you to to go into it, but I'll just preface it a little bit. Some may say that you're picking a fight against a product that many seem to use, of course, in terms of um, the the proposal to ban baby wipes. If you could just give us the, the understanding of what the big problem is.
10: Well the proposal is really not to ban baby wipes, it's to ban the word flushable on the baby wipe package um uh, they are not to be flushed uh and indeed we've been having uh the region has and and municipalities across canada have been having discussions over for many years with the manufacturers to tell them or to work with them to remove the word flushable from the packaging there's nothing wrong with the product the product's a great product and i've used them myself um but to flush them is not the way to dispose of them
6: Okay, so first off, that maybe clears off a lot of air because the rhetoric that is coming around is that uh, it seems like you're picking a fight with that product and we should get rid of it entirely. So that's not necessarily the case. It's just a slight pivot in terms of getting rid of the word and not necessarily the product.
10: Yes, um, uh, they have insisted, the manufacturers have insisted uh, on using that word. They've claimed, um, you know, uh, they're going to take some time and look at it, but it's been a long time. Um, And that uh, is costing York Region residents about a million dollars a year. That's one dollar per every resident. Um, and I think that's low in the estimate um other uh, Canadian municipalities in total there's been an estimate that it might be up to two hundred and fifty million, which would be more like seven dollars per resident in York region uh because they go down the drain um they go into the uh the sewage system, they get caught, and they they glom onto fat particles et cetera and then block the sewer, or almost block the sewer, and we have to have staff go down there and clean it, and, uh, there can be floods. There's about, the estimate's about 20 a year in York region, um, flooding incidents that are caused, small ones, not like the large one this morning, uh, small ones that are caused by the flushables. They glom together, block the pipes, and uh, somebody gets uh, sewage in their basement.
6: Mm, Okay, all right, I hear you. So, uh, of course, because of that that one word, it, it definitely changes the scope of things and how people use it and, of course, how they dispose of it. Have you heard from other municipalities about this issue? Interesting,
10: no, um, I haven't. I do know that other municipalities across the country, all you need to do is research it. And uh, i been looking at some things online. Um, they've had similar incidents. Um, I think our estimate, I mentioned earlier, I think our estimate is a little low. Um, but it happens. The older the pipes, the more, in my view, the more difficult uh, uh, this can be. And uh, in York Region, the pipes are generally more new, uh, uh, plastic as opposed to iron, etc., and uh, uh, the blockages uh, uh, are probably fewer. I would say that if you called Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, or the city of Toronto, city of Montreal, with large downtown areas, you're probably going to find a lot more blockages than we find. Right.
6: Okay. And so because of, of course, the concern of blocking the pipes, um, as you mentioned, maybe the municipality of Markham, uh, because you have newer pipes and maybe be able to sustain it for just a little bit longer as opposed to municipalities that might be older, can maybe other cities come um, and join along with Markham to maybe... Maybe file a formal petition against the companies to say, "Hey, get rid of the word because uh, you're affecting our, 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 basically our sewage system." Uh,
10: that's a good point. Um, it's really York Region that's in charge of this, um, and this came up at York Region Council in in June. And uh, my recommendation uh, uh, it differs from um, some others. I'm not really an education person. I would uh, uh, say to the uh, uh, manufacturers, the word "flexible" has to be off the, uh, the, uh, the wrapping or the container or wh- wherever it is. It has to be off by January the 1st or we're taking them off the shelf. We can save a great deal of money, tax dollars, uh, just by them being disposed of in the green bin. Uh, some ask, some of them can go in the green bin, some of them go in the garbage, but not down, uh, the, so, uh, the sewer system. So I would take them off the shelf, I give them a time frame and take them off the shelf. I think, uh, education's good, but, uh, why would the manufacturers put the word flushable on there if they're not flushable? I think that's, uh, that's inaccurate, uh, that's, a, that's false. And they should be just taken off the shelf.
6: Would some say, though, that that might be too much of a radical approach considering, um, you're not you're not against the product, you're against the wording on the product, would maybe uh, residents maybe come against you um, a little bit too negatively saying, hey, you're taking away something that we use?
10: Well, I don't want to take it away. Um, they can use the product whenever they want, however they want. It's just how they dispose of it. Um, we have a green bin system in uh, York Region, across the whole region, and uh, they can dispose of these in the green bin. Uh, or if they, uh, some of them, if they want, they can put them in the garbage. They just don't go down the sewer system, the toilet, and uh, so everyone can use them. There's no problem with that. And uh, I think uh, we've been asking the manufacturers for years to take the word "flushable" off, and they don't want to do it, obviously. So uh, you take the next step and say, uh, "Thank you, but they're, they'll be off the shelf." It would not take them more than three or four weeks at the latest, at the longest to take the word off the packaging and get them back on the shelves. And there are many products that don't have the word flushable on them, so they would remain.
6: Okay, and so um, now that the uh, motion was brought forward or the proposal was brought to Regional Council, what happens now? What's the process?
10: um we just discussed it um it was in a uh, um a memo from staff and we discussed it and the staff is going to come back with an approach in the fall uh i would say or i don't know exactly when in the fall but they'll be back with it uh and we'll obviously deal with it again um our uh, staff up and uh, the waste management staff up of the region have been working very hard on this issue and uh... i'm sure what they're going to talk about is some education aspects. and uh... what i'm going to talk about is i agree with that completely um... but um... at some point in time we should remove any product that's got flushable on there when they're not acceptable in the sewer system if they're costing seven dollars up to seven dollars let's say one dollar to seven dollars for every resident in the york region uh, why should we allow it to continue?
6: Right. Okay, so we're going to continue to watch this. Uh, it's a it's a pretty interesting debate, and I think, um, as you mentioned, it's probably likely that there might be uh, some sort of educational approach that council might move forward with in terms of uh, letting residents or helping residents understand that it's not necessarily a flushable item. Just just chuck it in the garbage and move it move it along. Councillor Heath, thank you so much for uh, this discussion, and we will continue to uh, monitor this situation. Hopefully it gets a peaceful resolution. Thank you. That's our show for this week. If you missed any
2: part of the feed or have a story idea, a community event to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.